Well, hello again. I'm Doug, uh, and we're continuing on in tapping into the voice of God. And we've spoken uh, over the last few weeks about the different benefits that come to us if we're willing to not just uh, receive God for the sake of salvation or some kind of divine, vague blessing, but if we're actually willing to tap into God's voice. You know, week one, we talked about how we, we can find identity and purpose from God's voice. Last week, Steve Howard was talking about that, that if we're willing to tap into God's voice, we can get joy uh, and guidance from his voice in our lives. Uh, and so today, we're, we're going to kind of continue through with that as we look at what, what it actually means to tap into God's voice and hear his will for your life. And as we get into that topic, I actually know people who claim that they hear God regularly and daily telling them what to do with their lives. And I don't just know them from mental institutions. They're actually pretty normal. Uh, And in fact, some of the most peaceful and even admirable people that I know. In fact, one of my friends, Pua Kaufman, uh, works here at St. John. The, the way she got here was because as she was wrapping up college in her internship, everyone kept saying, well, have you started looking for a job? What are you going to do? How are you going to work? And she just kept saying, you know, God's telling me not to look for a job right now. And you can imagine how crazy that sounded, especially to her parents who didn't want her coming back home necessarily. But she just kept saying, no, God's telling me not to look for a job, that he's got this covered. And sure enough, uh, St. John hunted her out and, uh, and offered her a job, and she didn't have to look for it. Um, but you can see how when people talk about hearing God's voice and actually trusting him for their life decisions, it starts to get a little kooky. Uh, John Eldridge, who's actually one of my favorite Christian authors and speakers, John Eldridge uh, actually submits his lunch decisions to God. Like, like, like when he's about to go to lunch, he actually prays and says, God, where should I go to lunch today? And again, I don't know about you, but that seems a little weird to me. Like, does God really care whether you go to Lion's Choice or Arby's? I mean, I mean, one is clearly better than the other. But is that really something we need to be involving God in uh, and, and, and bringing his voice into it? And so as I, as I hear these stories, uh, and as, I, as we even approach this topic of, of what does it mean to have God speak into our lives and all of the consequences that come you know, from that, uh, the first thing is just to confront my own skepticism. It, it just seems weird and beyond the pale of good, respectable American Christianity, right? Like we should just plug along and do our thing. And, and, and people that ask for more from God, it's a little out there. It's a little kooky. But if I'm being even further honest with myself, I think part of the reason I have that skepticism and that kind of weird look on that is because it comes with fear. Because if there are people that I see and, and, and they're, they're having good lives, they're peaceful and they're admirable and they're, and they're noble and, and they're making an impact and they're telling me that they're doing it because they're having some sort of daily conversation with God and he's guiding their steps, then I'm missing out on something. And it makes me worry, what have I missed out on? What, what power of God am I not hearing? And, and more importantly, when I look at my history, what bad choices have I made? What mistakes have I committed because I wasn't in tune with this voice of God who could have told me the right thing I should have been doing? I mean, I've faced a lot of hard decisions. Like, which college should I go to? Like, that would have been really helpful to have God weigh in on that one. What job should I take? What relationships should I pursue? And, and if there's actually an opportunity to have God tell me the answers to those things and I've been missing it, there's some fear and apprehension in there. There's some regrets. 
And so as we really dive into this topic, as we, as we kind of peel back the, 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 the carpet a little bit and say, what would this look like? I feel like there's no better way, no better story to use to dive in than the story of Samson. I don't know how many of you remember the story of Samson. Again, this is one of those ones that you hear a little bit about in Sunday school and then probably never again since. Uh, and so we're going to be there. It's Judges 13 through 16. That's, that's right. There's four chapters on the study of Samson. Uh, and so I have to confess, we fibbed to you a little bit earlier. We're not going to be here for 70 minutes this morning. It's going to be about 320 um, to get through four chapters. Um, but no, I'm not going to do that to you, actually. Uh, it, it is hard to summarize the story of Samson. Uh, it's especially hard to do it in a way that's less than a PG-13 rating, because it's a pretty R-rated story. And because there's no children's ministry, we have several kids in the audience with us today. Uh, so rather than, than risk it, I'm going to actually defer, and I'm going to let the creative genius Cecil B. DeMille summarize the story of Samson for us this morning. So check out what Cecil does. Now relive the colossal drama of the mightiest colossus that ever lived. Samson and Delilah, the immortal story of the strongest man in all history, a masterpiece of big screen entertainment. Samson, who alone and unafraid challenged and defeated the most dreaded army of his time. His daring exploits have become legend. The lion of the desert he fought with his bare hands. See as he saw the orgies of barbaric pagans that roused his vengeful fury. Samson was ensnared by the seductive beauty of Delilah. Daughter of hell. His lust became a trap that led to his downfall and capture. And chained, he was tortured and blinded. Here is the most spectacular scene of destruction ever filmed. Samson using his incredible strength to bring down the Temple of Dagon in crashing ruins. Samson and Delilah. So there you have it. That's the story. You should go check that out sometime if you want to see the full two and a half hour version. But it's pretty epic stuff, right? I mean, I mean, the guy fought with lions and defeated a thousand soldiers with a jawbone and slept with prostitutes. I mean, like, it's a very weird story. Why is this story in the Bible? And why are we going to spend some time talking about it today? And, and first and foremost, I want to say this, that, that if you get nothing else out of this story, it's this, that God saves screwed up people. And he uses screwed up people to do his work in this world. I have lots of conversations where, where people talk about uh, having hopes and dreams of, of ministries they want to do or, or, or acts of service they want to do, but they feel like they're disqualified uh, from doing it. Oh, I, I couldn't be a leader. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, take charge 
uh, of anything like this. And, and I said, you know, Samson was a judge. A judge meant that he was a, a leader and a rescuer of God's people. Uh, and if he wasn't disqualified, you're not disqualified. Or, or I have counseling sessions with people whose families are in turmoil, and, and, and I have parents of grown children feeling just so powerless, like, like you know, they're saying, I, I can't be a force for reconciliation with my children because my own background, my own, I didn't do the things I should have done growing up or, or, or when I raised my family. And, and again, they feel so powerless and disqualified. And I think from now on, my counseling sessions, I'm just going to make everybody read the Samson story. And, and again, just, if he, can, if he can do it, if God can use him, can save him, can, can bring out, you know, restoration from him, he can do it through you no matter how disqualified you may personally feel. If you get nothing else this morning, get that. See, because here's the thing. Samson was not a hero in our sense of it. He wasn't really a noble person. He wasn't, he didn't have moral virtue. Um, He had this one kind of freakish thing that God would send his Holy Spirit on him and make him strong. But as we're going to see, that's not enough to live the life that God wants you to live or or to follow the voice of God's will through your choices and actions. So I'm going to just hit kind of three milestones in Samson's life. We're just going to kind of hit those real quick and then we're going to unpack what that might mean for us today as we try to live lives pleasing to God, to let his voice speak to us and let his will help guide our own choices and decisions. So let's start with the beginning. So at the very beginning of the story, before Samson was even born, um, an angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you've been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And his hair must never be cut. This is maybe the detail that people remember. Can't cut his hair, uh, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. And he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. All right, this is the beginning of the story. And you see how God's voice is, is very obvious. Like he spoke to Samson's mother through, through an angel. All right, and, and so he gave very clear uh, words to them. And, and you'll notice a couple of things that make sense uh, because we talked about him in week one, if you were here, that he gave identity and purpose, right? Like he said, this is who he's going to be. You're going to have a son, and this is who he's going to be, and this is what he's going to do. His purpose is he's going to begin to rescue the, uh, Israel from the Philistines. Those are the bad guy soldiers you saw in the movie. But he actually goes a step further with Samson, and that's what's going to help us today, because he not only gives him identity and purpose, like we've talked about, but he actually gives very specific instructions for how he should live his life. He needs to live as a Nazarite, uh, which meant a few things. I mean, he wasn't supposed to drink alcohol. Uh, He wasn't um, supposed to touch anything dead or unclean ever. Uh, And then the big one, uh, you know, like the symbol of the vow was he wasn't supposed to cut his hair. So God actually gave him steps to take action he was supposed to follow. Uh, And if you followed the story, you'll know that Samson did none of these, except the not cutting the hair part. He never did cut his hair. And, And I'm sharing that not to pick on Samson, but more to just reflect for a moment, isn't this us? 
doesn't each and every one of us have, don't we live this life and, and we do some things maybe the way God wants and we do some other things the way we want, but, but we've got this kind of mental line that, like, that we don't cross and as long as we stay on this side of the line, we're doing all right. We don't necessarily need more of God's input in our lives because we're here. You know, for Samson, it was as long, you know, yep, I'm, I, I have zero virtue. I'm marrying people outside the faith. I'm doing all these dishonorable things. I'm murdering people for the sake of a bet. I mean, he does these terrible things, but I never cut my hair, God. So we're good, right? And how many of us have that, right? Like it's this, again, we might not even speak it all the time. We're like, oh, you know, maybe I don't live the way I should be, but, but you know what? But I, but I go to church. I go to church every week. Come on, right? God, like surely that's gotta be, that's got, we gotta be good. Or, you know, I don't, I don't really do any of the things I know I should be doing, but, um, but you know, but I believe in God and, and I trust him. And, and again, surely that's got to be enough. You know, like, so it's not just that there's this epic story of Samson and he's just this kind of ridiculous character. But I, I think what we see in him is, is a more hyperbolized version of what we do with our own lives. That, that, you know, God gives us clear instructions, but we kind of focus on the one thing. We say, well, let's just, let's just stick with the one thing. But Samson himself, not only did he violate all these things, I mean, he was literally sleeping with the enemy. Like, he, he kept going to Philistine women and, and having relations with them, but he still always considered himself God's servant, even as he's blatantly violating God's laws. And so you see this moment. Uh, this is after he's fought a battle and he, and where he's used the jawbone and killed a thousand soldiers. And afterwards, he says, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst? And what I think is so interesting about this moment is that for all that he lived this life of licentiousness, through it all, he considered himself God's servant. And it reminds me that we tend to judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intent. And that's what we see Samson doing, right? Any outside observer would say, you're an immoral, non-God-following person. You're doing all these bad things. Um, you clearly are not someone who's following God. But if you ask Samson in this moment, he says, I'm God's servant. Like, this is who I am. Uh, and, and it's just a, this reminder of this double standard that we have. It's easy for us to judge Samson, but, but when we are being honest with ourselves that we want to be God's servant, uh, whether we always follow God's will for our lives or not. And then ultimately, I love this kind of petulant thing where, where Samson's like, you know, complaining to God, right? Like after he's lived this life where he's, he's basically ignored God, ignored the things that God spoke to him at his birth. Uh, and now in this moment of peril, now he's saying, well, well what, what, where have you been, God? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you saving me? And it's just, there's just a petulance, the only word I can think of that just kind of makes me laugh. Because I think, again, we're, we're very similar to that. And I'll, I'll unpack that a little more later. But, uh, but yeah, no matter what we do, it generally is God's fault when, when he doesn't speak into our lives, when he doesn't rescue, uh, when he doesn't make his will clear to us. And then finally, we, we jump to the end of Samson's life. You know, that this big pivotal moment, you saw it in the trailer and been immortalized in art. Uh, So Samson's been captured by the Philistines. He's been imprisoned uh, and they've burned out his eyes. So he's blind. And now those Philistines are getting together for a party. And so when the people saw Samson, they praised their God to Dagon saying, our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, bring out Samson so he can amuse us. So he was brought from the prison to amuse them, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. 
Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. O God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down and the Philistine rulers uh, on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than, when, than he had during his entire lifetime. Yay! I guess. It's not the most inspirational story. And you can see why this isn't preached on more often in church. I mean, that's the end. I mean, it's not exactly Braveheart. Um, so what are we supposed to take from this? As we reflect on this story and we see this guy who, even at the end, like, like it's one thing, you know, in the Old Testament times to, to kill God's enemies. You know, we, we don't tend to speak that way anymore or, or we see a higher purpose for what God wants us to do with our enemies. But, but even then, it wasn't like Samson was saying, oh, let me give you glory, God. <laughs> he just wanted revenge for his two eyes. Uh, how does God use people like Samson and what implications does that have for us? So for me, there are two things I'd really like to, to take away from this today. And the first is I'd like to clarify our own understanding of God's will. Because depending on how we understand God's will, this story of Samson is either, well, is, is almost certainly a colossal failure, Right? And I think it's because we tend to think this, like, like when we think about God's will, you know, for our own lives, like we think that there's some cosmic bullseye, right? And, and that God wants us to do this certain thing. He wants us to have the exact right job that he designed for us and have the exact right family uh, and live in the exact right place. Uh, and that we've got this bullseye of God's will that each and every one of us is ultimately aiming for. And, and I see why we make this assumption, right? Because like, you even look at the story of Samson and you've got Samson's mother and this angel comes down and specifically says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have this son. You're going to do this thing with him. He's going to save Israel. And it kind of reinforces this bullseye idea of God's will because we, we see it uh, in Samson's life. Uh, but what we forget is that God's active voice speaking to people with very specific plans was, has always been rare. Even in biblical times, for every Samson's mother, there were thousands of other mothers that didn't get such precise instructions from God. And so this cannot be the way it works even for just the majority of people, let alone, I don't even think it's right in the first place. Uh, and so rather than seeing this as, oh, and then the other problem with this is, is A, that most of us don't have divine angels coming to us and speaking specific bullseye instructions. The second problem with this is, what happens if you miss the bullseye? What happens when you look at a life like Samson's and he had very specific things God wanted him to do and he spent his entire life running away from those things? Does he have any hope of being in God's will if it's a bullseye? What about us? As we reflect on our own regrets and the choices that we've made in our own life that haven't played out the way we wanted them to, 
or anticipating forward in, into the choices that we have yet to make and, and not knowing whether we're making the ones that are actually going to result in our greatest good that God designed for us. It can be very paralyzing, very fear engendering. If this is the way it is, I think we're all going to spend most of our lives struggling. And so the good news is, I don't think this is the way it is. Gary Friesen, who is a professor at Multnomah University, he says there's a, a much better way to understand God's will for our lives, and it's a much more, it's more accurate and biblical way, and it's ultimately more helpful for us as we try to follow God's voice for our life. And so he, he says that there's two things to understand, that there's, there's, there's kind of two circles. The first circle is God's sovereign will which is just a fancy way of saying the things that God allows to happen. God's sovereign will, he's the ruler of everything. He allows certain things to happen, okay? There is also then God's moral will, which are, these are the things that God actually wants to happen. These are the things he would like to be, all right? And in a perfect world, in one day in heaven, these circles are gonna be perfectly Overlapping, They're going to be perfectly aligned. The only things that happen are going to be the things that God wants to happen. But in the meantime, because of sin and brokenness and a fallen creation, they're, they're not perfectly overlapped anymore. There's this, there's this separation between God's sovereign will, what he allows to happen, and God's moral will, what he actually wants to happen. So just to help unpack that, we're going to explore some uh, examples of what that might look like, all right? So for example, outside of this Venn diagram, like kind of out here, these are all the evil things that God uh, has not allowed to happen, right? So it's evil and thankfully God hasn't allowed it to happen. So that'd be like an, an asteroid destroying earth and everything on it, right? That'd be a terrible thing. It'd kill God's children um, that, that he loves, but it hasn't happened, okay? So that, that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, or me getting like a Teletubby tattoo, like that would be an abomination <laughs> before God and man and has not happened. So thank you, God. All right. Okay, that's that. But now we start to get into, this is more theoretical. Now we start to get in the practical. The things that God allows to happen, but that are outside of his moral will, what he would like to happen. This is, this is where you get evil that we witness. This is both those kind of petty things, that, the petty ills that we do to people around us in our own families, at work, all the way up to the, the global injustices and genocide. Uh, the evil that exists in the world exists because God has allowed it to happen. It's not what he wants, but he's allowed it to happen and, and, it, and it's there. On the other side uh, of this chart is, um, is these are the things that God would like to happen, his moral will, but, but they haven't happened. And, and one very specific example of this is that God wants everyone to be saved. God wants all people to know his love for them. He wants everyone to spend eternity in relationship with him uh, in, in a place with, with no tears and sadness and pain. This is what he wants. But it, what he's allowed us is to have is free choice and free will. And, and so even though this is what he wants to happen, it's not going to happen. Not everybody's going to be saved. God wanted the German national team to advance past the first round of the World Cup. But did it happen? No, because they blew it. All right, so these are good things that we'd like to happen, don't happen. But now here, section four, this is where I want to focus the rest of the time because this is the sweet spot, right? These are the things that God allows to happen and he wants to happen. And in this area, and you notice it's not just a dot, it's big. This is the area of freedom for God's children. This is where he says, hey, there, there are all the things I've kind of told you in my moral will. There's 10 commandments. And if you just kind of stick by those guidelines, the world is your playground, 
right? Like, like it's not just one precise dot. It, it's, there's this whole thing that we as children of God have access to God's will and, and we have the area of freedom. So just to give you some uh, examples, we're going to use finances for that, right? Like if someone comes up to me and says, ah, I just, I'm struggling with finances and I just, I feel like I really need to rob a bank uh, to get my, my finances right. It, I don't have to have God's will or God's voice, sorry, speaking to me to say, no, no, that's a bad idea, right? That's wrong. You should not rob the bank. I already know that without God's voice and intervention. Uh, But on the flip side, if someone comes to me and says, oh, I've got this financial situation. I'm not sure whether I should invest uh, in some stocks to kind of set up my retirement um, or whether I should donate it all to charity, you know, maybe the Cambodia mission that St. John's doing, right? And I think some of us would think that there's a clear right answer there, right? Oh, should you donate it to charity or should you invest in your own retirement? Oh, which one should you do? Uh, and, and, and I think there's this, maybe not in this group of people, but I think in a lot of the way Christianity has talked about that, oh, well, you've got to give it to charity. Area of Christian freedom, guys. As long as you're using your money in ways that are going to, in retirement sense, take care of your family, whom you have a vocation and a calling from God to provide for your family, that's a good thing. Or if you want to use it to support Cambodia because we're helping children who are in need, that's a good thing. They're both good things and they are both um, contained in this area of freedom that there's nothing wrong with those and both of them support God's moral will, the, the things that he's told us he values. He values you taking care of your family. He values you taking care of children. Pick one. And I think we assume that there's this binary, again, it's back to that bullseye thing, that there is one right choice of how to use my money in that moment. And, and actually, I think there probably is, but, but what my promise to you is, is, is that if you are living intentionally in this area of freedom, then you're going to be doing God's will. To unpack this a little bit more, this is what I think I see in, in people like my friend Pua uh, or, or authors like John Eldridge, is that what they're doing is they're not just casually living here, they are intentionally living in this area of freedom. They recognize that, that every choice they make is in this playground that God has given us. And they're saying, but they're not just kind of blindly walking through it. They're saying, God, how can I honor you today? And maybe on the little stuff, he didn't initially speak to them. But just the fact that they asked that question primed them and oriented them to start walking in the paths that he'd already laid down for them. And this is where we see Samson blowing it because he had some, a very few restrictions, right? I mean, the restrictions were don't sleep with the enemy, don't cut your hair, don't, uh, don't do these immoral things. And he intentionally chose to do them. And where did he go? He left the area of freedom and went over here. And in that moment, when someone like Samson says, God, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you saving me? That there's a very clear answer, which is, well, why are you already outside of your area of freedom? Why are you doing the things you don't want to do or that God doesn't want you to do that you know this? We have a tattling problem in my family right now. My eight-year-old, my six-year-old, and my four-year-old. I mean, yeah, it's not like me and my wife. I don't tattle on my wife to anybody. Um, but no, the kids have a tattling problem. Um, and, and we have a three-step tattling rule in our, in our family, uh, which is that, um, that step one is if someone's doing something you don't like, step one is tell them or ask them to stop. Say, hey, that's hurting my feelings. It's making me feel bad. Please don't do that. Step two, if they continue to do it after you've asked them to stop, go somewhere else 
right? Just leave, leave the situation. If they keep bothering, fine, go do, go read a book, go, go play a different game. Step three is if like they keep following you and, and still bothering you after you've asked them to stop once, after you've gone, you removed yourself from the situation. Step three then is if they're, if they're still pestering you after you've done those steps, now you can come tell mom and dad. But now guess how many times I have this conversation where my four-year-old comes up to me complaining about something that my six-year-old did and I say, oh, well, did you do step one? No. Okay, so what do you think I have to say to you right now? (laughs) Go do step one. Yeah. And I send her back, right? And when we look at this area of freedom, what, what I see happening from, in my own life for sure, but I think for a lot of us, is, is, that, is that God's already given us kind of some steps and some parameters. And, and when we're asking, crying out for his voice, and we're like, God, help me with this decision. Help me w- with figuring out this out. He, he's saying, well, what's step one? You know, Pastor Howard talked about the life journey. And for us, that's such an important series of steps. The, the life, you know, step one is, are you giving a day a week to God and worship? Are you, are you being intentional to someone in your life? Are you, are you spending 15 minutes in a spiritual discipline? And then ultimately, are you spending your other six days in service of the people around you? Uh, and, and I feel like for so many of us, like, we got to start there. It's where I check my own self when I'm like, God, help me with this decision. And God says, well, have you been spending 15 minutes a day in spiritual discipline? No. This is the area of freedom. And I think that people who have tapped into God's voice for their lives and actually see his will, it's because they have been so intentional, intentional about living here. With the little things, saying, all right, God, how can, I, how can I serve the people around me today? God, how can I invest in my relationship with you today? And when they do those little things, what ends up happening is that the big things ultimately start to slot into place, Right? Like, if I have a goal to become as strong as Samson, um, I can't necessarily just do that instantly. Um, but if I instead say a goal of, hey, I'm going to take 30 minutes and work out every day, eventually there's going to be some strength increase that happens, right? And, and if we are intentional about living in this area of freedom and submitting even the small choices to God, not because we think he's actually necessarily going to give us a really strong leading on, on, on which fast food place to go to lunch, but just because it reminds us that there is this place where we're supposed to be, that God has some will for us, I do think that's ultimately going to reflect uh, in the bigger choices, that we're going to start naturally, and this is what I see again in my friend Pua, that, that you start naturally seeing God's will for you in the bigger things, and you start hearing his voice in far more natural ways, even when you get to the big things. There's a scripture that supports this too. Uh, it's Romans 8, 28, uh, where it says this. Paul's writing to, to fellow believers, and he says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So you notice this word, purpose. Like, this is God's will, right? These, the, and, and the calling, right? Like, like he, the, through his voice, he calls you to do his purpose, his will for your life. But the, but the amazing promise of it is this, that he's going to cause everything to work together for your good. If you are trying to live in that area of freedom, if you are trying to live in a way that serves and pleases him, guess what? He's going to make it work out. You want to use your money for retirement and, and, you want, and you submit that decision to God? Guess what? He's going to bless it and he's going to make it work out. You want to use your money for a charity? Guess what? He's going to bless it and make it work out. You face a hard decision about which college to go to, which job to take, and you submit that to God and say, God, I want to just dwell in this area of freedom and I, and I want to submit my choices to you. Guess what? I truly believe that there will be no wrong choice for you in that moment because of this promise of God. 
that if we're trying to live up to his purpose, his will, and the identity he's given us, then he will make it work together for your good. It's kind of like being in the area of freedom, being in God's will is like having a GPS. Like we all have GPSs now on our phone, in our cars, right? And if you notice that, that when you're following a GPS, that even if you get off track, it doesn't shake the GPS at all, right? Like my, this happens to my wife all the time. Like she's you know, following the GPS and then like she gets off track, mostly because like she saw a Starbucks that she didn't know was there before. And it's like, you know, like we got to find that. But have you noticed, does it bother the GPS when you take a wrong turn? Well, no, it's just very calmly, you know, Siri just says rerouting, right? And, and, and just gets you right back on the destination. And, and I think that's the picture for what it's like to be in God's will. That it's not like these individual choices are going to be right or wrong, but that ultimately God's just going to be so, so gently continually guiding you towards where he wants you to be. He's going to work your life for your good according to his purpose. That's the promise. And that's what we saw God doing even with Samson. Like he found ways to work good uh, to Samson, which brings us to the next thing. And this is where I want to I finish out. Because it's one thing to be a good intentioned person who, who you know, faithfully reads the Bible every morning and who's always in church and, and just trying to submit to God and God's going to steer you right. That, that's one thing. What about all the decisions that we didn't do that? What about all the times where we didn't make a choice to honor God? We just didn't even think to ask. Or where we actually knew what the right choice was and we made the opposite one anyway. How many of us have lost years or even decades because we weren't living in that area of freedom, seeking God's will for our life? And is there not then this corresponding fear that it is too late to be in God's will anymore? Maybe we could have been. But I've made too many wrong choices. I've done too many bad things. I've spent too much of my life running after other stuff. God doesn't have anything to say to me anymore because I am so far out of his will that there's no point in even seeking his voice. And so to that, I remind you that this is the story of Samson and God's people in the time of judges. See, the reason they needed judges is because God's people kept making terrible choice after terrible choice. And they kept facing the consequences of that oppression uh, and, and people swooping in. And that's why God raised up judges like Samson to be their leader, to be their rescuer. And God said this, at one point the, the choices had gotten so bad that God's people had lost everything. They'd been conquered, they'd had their crops wiped out, they'd had famine, uh, everything was awful. And in that moment, God made this promise. In Joel, uh, the prophet Joel said this, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. This is what we talk about when we use the word repentance. I think when people hear repentance, they think it means a guilt trip and like, oh, I got to say how sorry I am. But repentance is actually just turning back to God. Repentance is recognizing that you're out of that area of freedom and you're in this place where where, where things are not going well for you. And to say, I got to get back out of this. I got to get back on track. I got to turn the GPS back on. And what God promises is if you will do that, if you will turn back to him, this is what God does. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. They'd lost everything, all their wealth, all their security, all their comfort and hope 
and peace. And God says, I'll give it all back. No matter how many years you lost to the locusts and the famine and the bad choices, God will fix it. He will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. This is the picture of Samson. That no matter how far gone he was, God could repair and repay with the choices that he'd made. We see in Hebrews 11 that Samson was ultimately welcomed into the halls of faith. We know that he is with God now because nothing is beyond God's ability to restore. No regret you have, no wrong choice you've made is greater than God's ability to repay. Because here's the question, how does God do this? How does he fix the things that we've done wrong? And, And I'll tell you this, you saw it in the story, you might not have even noticed. But when we looked at the beginning of Samson's life, did that sound familiar to you? When this angel came to a young woman and said, you're going to give birth to a son, a Nazarite, and he's going to begin to rescue God's people. Did that remind you of another time a few thousand years later when an angel came to a woman and said, you're going to give birth to a son named Jesus from Nazareth, and he won't just begin to rescue God's people. He's going to completely rescue everyone in the world. You see, the crowning moment of Samson's life was it says that in his death, he killed more people than he had in a lifetime. But in Jesus Christ's death, he saved the whole world. See, this is what God does. He doesn't rely on us to fix our own lives. He doesn't rely on us to accomplish his purposes. Because you'll notice this, Samson's life did accomplish God's purpose. It it did prevent the Philistines from oppressing his people Israel. It wasn't necessarily the way God would have wanted him to go about it, but God's purpose for Samson was not derailed even by a lifetime of bad choices that Samson made. And if that's true for Samson, then it's true for me. And it's true for you. So this morning, be encouraged that there is nothing that God cannot rescue you from. You can be as strongest person in the world like Samson, the wisest person like Solomon, maybe the best leader like David or Gideon, whom we've been learning about the last couple of weeks. Uh, But no matter how great you think you are, no matter how far gone you think you are, Jesus Christ is a judge who rescues. And he will save you no matter how screwed up you are. He will use you for his amazing purposes for your life no matter how imperfect you are. And that is a promise I cling to and one that I hope you can cling to. Because when we do, his voice will slowly get louder and louder in your life. His will will become more and more clear, and you will do amazing things that you never would have thought possible. Amen.